0: Welcome to the podcast Unimagined, where current and former students share how they imagine education in schools could be regarding student leadership. We ask them to share about their experiences and offer advice on how we can all do better. When
1: we clear the floor of the obstacles, imagine what they will. Imagine too. I know you can imagine
2: too. in this episode Emma Trumbull was a student of mine in chemistry several years ago talks to me about her experience working with professors and helping them develop their online platform as we transition back to to a pre COVID education, Emma shares her takeaways from supporting the professors at her college. She talks about how we gained so much insight into teaching practices during COVID and perhaps incorporating some of these strategies into what we were doing prior to COVID. Also, did you know that there is competitive jump roping team? I did not. I didn't know that was something Emma did since she was in second grade. What a fascinating interview with Emma. Welcome, Emma. I'm so grateful that you were able to fit this interview in with me. I am going to ask that we focus our interview on on the leadership skill of respect. I thought that respect would be the best to address that you were in that position where you had respect from elders. And I think as we get to know you and what you're doing these days, this leadership role that you have found yourself in, respect is super important. As being your former teacher, I do remember having a lot of respect for you as a student. And so I'm curious to learn more. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about your five character strengths from the VIA character survey?
0: The five characteristics that I received were curiosity, creativity, bravery, love of learning, and leadership. A lot of them go hand in hand. If you think about curiosity and love of learning, creativity also is involved in that, you know, you have to want to learn new things and do new things if you want to keep learning forever. And then I think that comes with bravery and leadership as well, because learning isn't something that people are always expected to want to do. So I think the five of them kind of go hand in hand.
2: It really sums up who you are to me as the student that I had when you were in class with me with chemistry, you never let on that that you were afraid to try something. And I think at least four of those five tie directly into I'm curious and I want to find out. Before we talk about what you are currently doing, I wanted to get a little sense of who you are as a person and who you were as a student when I knew you in high school and even before that. So if you can talk a little bit about um, your experience with jump roping, I would love to learn more.
0: I am a competitive jump roper and that started when I was in elementary school, probably second grade. I was bad, you know, as every second grader is when they first try something, they're not good at it. But I just kept doing it because I really enjoyed it more than anything else that I was trying and, you know, by the time I was in eighth grade, I was competing at the national level. I've competed internationally before. And I think my favorite part of this is it brings lots of opportunities for community. It allowed me to get more roles in leadership, roles in general, being on different committees, you know, learning how to do the the media for an event or just different things working with working with people that you probably wouldn't get to do in a larger sport. So I found that really a lot of my friends were trying to get scholarships. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I get to go travel to Ohio for a week and teach people. It's a bit of a different experience than you might have with other sports, but I really enjoyed it. The way that jump rope usually works is older jumpers become the teachers. There are often coaches that are adults, but a lot of the times the older jumpers, you know, in their in their teens and 20s will be in, end up teaching the younger kids. And so I had gone to a camp one summer to a jump, and then a couple summers later, I went to teach as a SIT, which is a staff in training. And then the following year, I applied to teach as a staff, and they accepted me, and they wanted me to come back again. I don't know that many people knew that about you
2: or knew that that even existed. It's funny to think about in hindsight that you were competing at a national level and I certainly didn't know. I feel like that's an opportunity that we miss in schools is celebrating a lot of different things. How would we have known about what you were doing?
0: not automatic that we celebrate something like a dance team in the town or anything like that. But they don't have to worry about the being celebrated. So nobody ever thinks about how do we celebrate somebody because it's automatic for those that are having the the school name. So I think it's kind of the reverse of, yeah, let's let's make everybody think about, oh, let's celebrate, you know, as opposed to just having it be this natural thing. You know, good morning generals, we're gonna say the lunch special and congratulate the basketball team and you just kind of sit through that for four years.
2: I almost have an idea of like, if in advisory, we could every week think about a way to celebrate somebody in the room or figure out a way to celebrate yourself, because we definitely don't practice that enough. And I think it's often seen as conceited But then we never find out really cool things about each other. So I'm trying to flip that on its head. You sort of alluded to turn it around and make it something that celebratory things happen for everybody. And we just make it more normal. There's a lot to go around. What opportunities did you have as a student before college?
0: So specifically with Jump Rope, I was able to travel a few times um, and teach, which is really cool. That might look like me missing school on a Friday, you know, flying out on a Thursday evening. And teaching all weekend and then coming back a Sunday night doing my homework and heading to school. Or a lot of what happens in that sort of respect happens in the summer. As I was always somewhere in the summer teaching or learning was a lot of it and then competing as well.
2: Where did you find out about jump roping?
0: I actually was given a rope for a birthday in third grade or second grade. So I was just kind of trying at my house, but I thought, you let's get the school involved in this. And part of that was my older brother had like a Lego club or something that had like 100 kids that would show up every week. But we ended up with a club at the elementary school in which a bunch of kids would show up once a month on like Fridays and just jump up in the gym for an hour. By the time it was middle school, it was once or twice a week. I had kind of grown out of the school team a little bit being in middle school. And so I ended up joining a more competitive team over in the seacoast.
2: I think that that's a unique, fun thing that we don't do that much anymore. So it'd be cool to like try and implement that.
0: Do high schools have teams? If we can grow the sport, that's what really matters. If you think about something like gymnastics, everyone watches the Olympics and sees Simone Biles and knows how difficult it is because they have done it or they know somebody is in gymnastics. And so everyone has that personal experience that kind of humanizes the whole thing and makes you realize how insanely difficult her doing three backflips with four turns is. And we don't have that with jump ropes. So people don't realize how difficult it is because you just kind of see it all at once and you don't realize. I think if we can just get more people doing it, even if that's in a high school environment, just for fun, that's just as good in my opinion. And then a lot of high schools might have one or two jumpers at them, but then those people can take on a leadership role and teach. Would you say it's an individual
2: sport or is there like
0: team mentality? It's both. There are individual events. And then there are double dutch events. And those can range from three people, four people, five people. And so you are working in groups for about half the time. And we do freestyle and speed. So speed is kind of like track or swimming. It's how many jumps can you take in a given amount of time. And then freestyle is think a gymnastics sport routine. How many cool tricks can you do in a minute and 15 seconds that look good and are clean and go with your music. And so those are the two things we do. We do them singularly. We do them in groups. And then there's one larger event, which is called team show. And that could be anywhere from 6 to 12 all the way up to 30 40 people um, and they're taking up a whole basketball court doing single rope things in sync
2: that sounds really fun can you continue to compete in college and
0: beyond usually a lot of people compete until they're in their 20s this is becoming more of a thing as more people are kind of sticking with it in college and university i will keep competing because i enjoy it so much i love teaching i love competing so i think i'll keep doing it until
2: Let's shift now into your current opportunity that you have in college. Can you share specifically what you are doing with interested professors?
0: My job is one that came immediately out of a COVID response. We needed something immediate to help professors learn technology. The way we describe it is that typically they're both the master of their content and their space and then COVID hit. Now they don't master the space anymore. They're all on a computer. And for many of us, computers can be difficult and frustrating at best. And so what we're here to do is both help them with technology, help them with pedagogy, and help them with the student's perspective to kind of bring us into 21st century education, because that's what we're in. And we got thrown into it so quickly with the pandemic, when nobody really had the chance to process what 21st century education looks like. And so that's kind of what I do is I can teach them things with Microsoft Teams, Moodle, online quizzes and that sort of thing. And then we can also just kind of talk through their syllabus with them. You know, what do you want to know about the student's perspective? I'm
2: thinking about myself wondering, let's say it's not COVID anymore, but I'm curious about maybe shifting the way I do business in my classroom. How would I go about talking to somebody? Like what would be our process? I come to you, I say, am I need some help? And you would say, okay, bring me your syllabus. Bring me. How does the relationship get established?
0: For my university, we have a website. It's an official program. So you'll sign up on the website and you'll put in your name and your email and any course codes you have. And then one of us will get paired with you. Sometimes it's a couple people in a group. Sometimes it's singular. And you'll get paired with us and we'll usually set up a meeting, which we call a needs assessment. We have some questions which could look like how many students are you expecting in your class? Very general things just so that we can get a grip on what is happening. And then on the other side, more interesting questions like what is the story of your course? Every course should have a story. Even if it's a chemistry class, what do you want your students to leave with aside from how to do basic, you know, chemistry. What is the story of your course here? And that can be really easy, but maybe straightforward for somebody who's like teaching an English class or something. What's the story of your course? Well, this is a course about Shakespeare and they can find their story pretty easily. A calculus class or a chemistry class, it might be a bit more difficult to kind of figure out what what am I trying to really impart on my students here? This is a a hefty conversation between the two of us. If the professors have any things that they want help with, you know, any specific software as I always like to take whatever they want to talk about first as well, and then just ask a few questions to kind of spark the discussion on where should we go from here. So we're here for all faculty, those that know technology, like the back of their hand, and those that are terrified of it. And we can work with anyone in any spectrum of.
2: I love the idea of trying to think of what my story is, because I think that's so key to being successful. And like you said, easy is not the right word, but straightforward. That prompt is for me to sit back and reflect because it's not just about doing the mundane rote chemistry stuff. It's about that story. So now I'm I'm thinking about my story. And then
0: what do we do? So then we'll usually offer some introductory recommendations. These might be just suggestions that make the the page more user-friendly for the student. Maybe adding a picture so that the course looks inviting when they click on it, little things like that. And then from there, working on anything that the professor needs, maybe we take a look at their syllabus and, you know, make recommendations based on, well, you know, giving a 40% final exam is, is but that can be really stressful for students. Maybe we make it two midterms and then a final instead of one midterm and a final, and those can all be brought down slightly in weight. Or maybe we offer students the option to do a term paper instead of a midterm if they like to write better than they like to do midterms. How can we make this class one that the students can build up to their final grade? Because if they can show you that they understand the material, that's all that should really matter. And so it's just all about working back and forth to come up with a class that works best for the professor and the student.
2: So where do you come up with these ideas of different types of assessments, different methods of assessment?
0: It's a lot of collaboration and it's a lot of, we do a lot of different PD with our university's consortium. And so there's always lots of events going on and different professors explaining how they're going about their class and just different things that you can kind of take from different people. One of my favorites is a professor who said that when they're teaching neuropsychology, which is a very difficult subject, she will have her board or her her iPad, if it's online and be writing. She's writing all of the content that the students need to know while she's teaching, because if she cannot write it all down in the time that it takes her to explain it, then her students won't be able to write it all down. And so she has to go through the same process that the students are going through, or else it's unfair that she's expecting that much of the students. But it's the concept of, do I think that I would be able to keep up with what I'm expecting my students to keep up? And all professors can look at that and kind of reflect as well.
2: It sounds like you have a pretty respectful faculty and a group of students working with your faculty, because I love working collaboratively with your professors and asking them questions. And gosh, just even your first statement of saying, I want to listen to them first. I think that those are all really key aspects of being an
0: effective leader. So what drew you to this experience? I had just kind of finished up an internship and I didn't have much else going on. And I got an email from my school's the head of IT and I read it and I said, this looks kind of interesting. And I'm not horrible at video editing, which was one of the hundreds of things that they had written down. So I applied, I went to the interview and it was incredible to hear a bunch of other students from my university, that community that I'm a part of, all talking about student-centered learning and pedagogy and stuff. It was just great to kind of feel like part of that community again. So there was quite a few of us for a small university of 2 to 3000 it's a student position which i think is difficult but also really interesting that it's kept as a student position because we are students and we want to keep it student centered so right now i think there's about 6 of us and we're hoping to get a few more but i think the most important thing no matter how many students that we have is that it never becomes transactional because i think that's when we lose the the personal experiences and personal relationships connections that we have so i think as long as it never becomes transactional i think that we're still doing our job
2: I'm just listening to you describe your role and I'm like, oh, what school couldn't use a student group like that? I do think your professors took a risk and I am so impressed with your school for developing and creating these opportunities for students because like this podcast, I think we are missing a key voice in education those being impacted by it, by what you guys are doing at your school, you are empowering student voice and making a huge difference for the student population. What unique experiences have you had that you can share from your position?
0: I think I've had a lot of unique experiences. I kind of think the whole thing is unique in nature that I am getting to work with professors on on the same level, you know, we call it students as partners, having students as partners, having students on the same level, we sign confidentiality agreements so that we can really be working with the professors like equals, which is a role that students don't often get to take, especially in education. So I think the whole thing is just unique in nature that I'm getting to work with professors looking at their syllabus before it's out saying, well, this is what I think as a student, the whole point of this is to gain a student's perspective. So I think the whole thing in nature is unique. I think the confidentiality
2: allows for more willingness to open up. Wow, I'm thinking of how some of those professors are putting themselves way out there in their risk zone by working with you guys to grow so much by listening to student perspectives. I think we're very often teachers are very afraid of being told we've done something wrong rather than thinking of it as, oh, here's an opportunity to make it better, make it better, not wrong, not think back, think forward.
0: We are doing some blog posts right now about some of the professors' experiences. And one we just put out was titled The Least Stressful Year I've Had in 10 Years. He decided to do a podcast for all of their content. And then they reflect and then they go to class. Somewhere along the line, you know, adding that podcast in and adding this new format. And he's going to be doing this with all 15 of his courses that he teaches. This structure and he's like, I have not gotten this much engagement. And I think COVID was a big part of why it worked as well. We caught the moment of, insecurity in all of education and and so my hope is that we can just keep going with this now that we've shown that it, it worked. We had some professors trying to do Shakespeare in the park in COVID because you can be distanced just all of the different things that you can do now that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. It's kind of flipping it on its tail of how can we go from here as opposed to how do we go from in person to online? And what is the most important thing in person that you would like to keep online. And now we're at the position of how can we go from online to in person? And what is the most important thing online that you want to keep going back to in-person? Because there are a hundred things that you can keep online that are incredible, that are time-saving emails. You know, if you can have a Q&A form at the top of your page where students can ask questions, if you can cultivate a welcoming enough classroom environment, you can have other students answering the students' questions. Oh, what does the essay due? Oh, do? Oh, it's due next Thursday at 11. And then you don't even have to do the work anymore. You know, Your email will be so much more empty. You won't be getting 100 emails from students. Or what if you have a submission box for an essay? Then you don't have to print them out. You won't get sick every year from touching all these students' papers that they keep handing in to you. Oh, you can grade it right online. So it's just finding ways to use the technology that we have to save you time, save you energy. I think if we do a no stakes assessment in which you're just giving them the opportunity to practice every week, those that want it can have it. Those that don't, that's fine. They don't have to do it. Those that want to wait and use it the week before the final exam, they can do that. And so if you give the students options for low stakes and no stakes assignments or assessments, then they can get that practice. They can get that feedback because it makes no sense to give them an exam on something. They have no response to whether they've done it right in the past. So it's really helpful to have your professor giving you content that you know, this is kind of what it looks like on the exam. This is what I can expect from this professor. And I don't have to worry about doing amazing. Okay, so this then leads me back to high school grading. What
2: it sounds like you are referring to is homework and what we're now maybe sort of hovering on in calling a formative assessment. So no stakes or low stakes. How does having homework and not be counted in high school, how does that help prepare students?
0: I noticed that once homework didn't count anymore, Nobody had the, the drive to do it, which also brought those of us that probably would have done it anyway down. And so I think it's important to have a balance of practice, I think, versus homework. Homework is work that you're trying to complete at home because you've been assigned it. Practice is you making sure that you know the content because you want to so that you can make sure that you're prepared. But the issue is when it comes to something like a more difficult class or a university class, finding practice is really difficult when you don't know what your professor is looking for.
2: And each professor has their own unique way of evaluating, so I think you're right. I think putting more value on practice and homework, if it's not worth doing, then don't assign it. I have felt that when I sort of shifted away from counting homework. I mean, I was okay with doing that because if you didn't do the practice, you weren't going to be successful, and the practice was homework if you didn't finish the practice in the time that you were given to practice it. What are some struggles that you have encountered in this role?
0: I think a big one is just the discrepancies and how how we see this process working between myself, coworkers, professors. But I think part of dealing with that is just realizing that we can kind of do this however we want. It's kind of a really open-ended book here, which makes it so incredible. And so kind of letting people utilize and work with the program in whatever capacity they like best, or whatever capacity will help them the most, I think is the best way to keep this going. Because not everybody needs the same thing. Not everybody wants the same thing. And so being able to accept that and kind of work with professors and be very flexible in in what you're doing. Some want to learn how to do things. Some would rather you do it. Giving that opportunity and leaving the way for whatever people want and whatever people find best from the program, I think is most helpful in that. It's not voluntary. It's a work study. I don't know that we necessarily have work study in Canada, but it's of the sort. I work for my IT department.
2: From your experience in life and what you're working on with professors, what advice would you give to students today?
0: Do whatever feels best for you. Um, you know, I moved to Canada because I wanted to, and I think it's been a great experience for me. And so kind of being able to do things because I because I said so, because I want to, is something that we don't get to do a lot in high school, but I think it's really important.
2: You now get to give some advice to people like me, teachers. We are going into a school year that is going to feel more normal than last year, but what advice do you have for us?
0: Keep the feeling that you had in the middle of COVID when you were kind of you lowered yourself a little bit and you and your students were all little boxes on your screen and kind of keeping the humility to work with your students and be flexible. And one thing that I've seen a lot throughout the pandemic is people in the, for example, the disability community saying, we've been asking for these accommodations for entire lives and they were never there until you decided that you needed them. And so keep that level of, oh yes, of course you can, you know, have an extra day on that essay forever. Because why not? What What's changing things? Why haven't we been doing that? Why haven't we been allowing students? We talk right now about, oh, your internet connection might be poor. You know, yeah, I'll give you a bit of a break. Well, there are other people whose internet connections have been poor for the last 10 years, and we never gave them a break. So it's just keeping the things that we've learned and keeping those things that have been so impactful for people when moving forward. We don't need to immediately go back to that stern face in front of a podium anymore. We've learned that that didn't really work.
2: Yeah, I hope a lot of people don't go back to that It's so funny to think of my experience as a teacher was, you know, when I first started, that's what I did. I stood in front of the room. I took notes with the kids. We all did it together. And then I transitioned to more of like letting students decide what they wanted to learn in this topic. Like there were some boundaries and guidelines, but like, I'm so happy that I had shifted in that approach when COVID happened. And I'm so happy that I had empathy to begin with because it wasn't hard to shift to, guys, listen, this is crazy. Chemistry does not matter. Like I remember in March being like, hey, can maybe we just take a week and just learn what it's like to be a family again? Because we haven't been in the same house for more than eight hours and most of that's sleeping ever. You know, like there's we've never lived as a family all together for 24 hours, seven days a week. And I think it would have been nice to figure those strategies out before. We were all so stressed. So I think you're right. Remembering that feeling when we lowered ourselves and connected because we were all feeling that we didn't have connections.
0: Any advice for parents? Let your kids do things. The thing that it gets me the most is when Parents need to control their children's lives to the point that they never will grow up. And then they like move off to university and they have no idea what they're doing. When I moved off to university, I had to get a bank account and I had to redo my life and I had to get a new social insurance number. And, and, you know, these are things that you don't typically think about. But if your kid has been under your wing for so long that they don't even know how to order McDonald's, you know, how are they go off and do things in the world? And that's what we need is people that are doing things.
2: I learned a lot talking with you and hopefully some others will hear. I hope more schools create this program that you guys have created because I know that as a teacher, I would love to get student perspective. And I think there's so much to be learned, especially with technology right now. We are getting further and further away as older educators in being in touch and I I still want to be able to connect with kids and provide them chemistry content I don't want to be I don't want to be stopped because of my fear of technology and I think you guys do a really good job at sort of reducing that fear and building us up teaching us Well, thank you so much for your time.
0: What I really liked about this
2: interview with Emma was how she so kindly shared ideas and has been so willing to help professors and teachers who are interested in improving their practices for the betterment of everyone, the professors themselves, the students they teach, and the overall experience in those classes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Unimagined. If this episode spoke to you, like it. If you think someone else could use it, share it. Or if you know of a student who has a story to tell, connect them to us. You can find me on Twitter at LConnell20. The theme music for this podcast was written and produced from a former colleague of mine, Keith McClendon, who is also an educator at a vocational school in Massachusetts.
1: obstacles, imagine what they will do.